0: Heavenly Father, today we put on the full armor to protect us against attack. We put on the belt of truth to protect against lies and deception. We put on the breastplate of righteousness to protect our hearts from the temptations. We put the gospel of peace on our feet to walk in your light, peace, and freedom with the Holy Spirit. We rebuke anxious thoughts. We take up your shield of faith for protection to block and destroy all the darts and threats thrown at us by the enemy. We put on the helmet of salvation to cover our minds and thoughts, reminding us that we are children of a mighty king. We are forgiven, set free, saved by the blood of Jesus. We take up the sword of the spirit, your living word, that has the power to demolish strongholds and is sharper than any double-edged sword. We come to you, Lord, in prayer daily. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. Amen. What's up, you guys? Welcome to The Imagination. I'm your host, Emma, and this week I'm absolutely honored and thrilled to bring on Christian contrarian authority on all things biblical prophecy, language etymology, secret societies, hidden history, and so much more— and author of the profound book many of you may be familiar with, The Genesis 6 Conspiracy, the legend himself, Gary Wayne. One of the things I love most about Gary is his ability to eloquently and almost clinically bridge the gap between conspiracy and reality. In a time where many people want to look away at the hard truths of the world, Gary's voice provides a professional and palatable way for anyone and everyone to learn these hard truths without the headache and confusion so many feel when venturing down these complex rabbit holes that can so often turn people away. I have personally learned so much from Gary myself and am continually in awe of the depth of research and scope he has acquired over his years of studying and educating others. His book, The Genesis Six Conspiracy, How Secret Societies and the Descendants of Giants Plan to Enslave Mankind, is an absolutely crucial piece of literature Detailing the role of modern day Nephilim and Satan's plan to install the Antichrist at the end of days that I would encourage you all to consider purchasing if you haven't already. A true thought leader of our time, Gary is actually close to debuting and publishing his second book that will be a continuation of the Genesis 6 conspiracy. And I don't know about you, but I couldn't be more excited. It's a personal dream come true to have Gary on the show. And I ask that you all put down whatever you're doing, grab a pen and paper, Take notes and pay close attention, because in true Gary Wayne fashion, I know each of you will take away an extraordinary amount of value on today's episode. So you guys, without further ado, I'm honored to introduce author, voice for the voiceless, man of God, and selfless educator, and one of my personal heroes, the one and only Gary Wayne. Gary, thank you so much for being here with me today.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me to guest on your show. So much looking forward to the discussion and introducing myself to your audience uh, for those who may not be you know aware of who I am. And if we do things correctly, we're going to raise their eyebrows more than once tonight. So.
0: Well, I know that definitely happened for me when I stumbled on you. I was telling you a little bit, my podcast, I feature a lot of survivors and talk about child abuse, but it really goes hand in hand with the things you talk about. And I didn't realize that till later in my journey. What a big part, biblical prophecy, um, you know, the duality of Satan and God secret societies and even the Nephilim, you know, have such a part in today's modern society. So I just thought it was really important. Your voice ties in so many different things and you've self-educated yourself in so many different levels and it's amazing. And like you said, there may be some people that listen, listening right now that might not know who you are. And even for, for people who might follow you, um, I actually don't know, how you got into all this. I'd love for you to give a little bit of background about yourself and maybe tell us how you stumbled on this passion that you've taken this far. Yes,
1: yeah, So I like to call myself a Christian contrarian and I'll, I'll explain that first. And yeah. it's not that I can't be in sort of the common understanding of what a contrarian is sort of pushing back against everything and going against the flow. I have a bit of that nature in me, in, in me myself, but more how I look at that as defined as a title that I like to carry. It's like being a Berean and that I don't want to trust what somebody says, just, you know, face value. I don't want to trust what somebody says, something says. I want to verify it for myself. So in my research, I do that with the Bible and I do that with everything outside the Bible, and then I measure everything I research outside the Bible to see how it measures up to what it says in the Bible, and continue to do that, and that way I can understand what is sort of understood kind of universally, and sort of relay that back to people, and the other stuff I'll keep in mind for context, and I can talk about it But if it strays away from what the Bible says, then it's just sort of interesting, but it's not sort of part of my conclusions type of thing. It's just uh, one of the disciplines that I like to have. And when you research so many different religions... And their histories and their mythologies and all the things that took place you have to have that armor of god on that you started off the show uh with the prayer because some of it's very seducing some of it sounds very legitimate uh, and you always have to have that armor of god on because it's doing what it was designed to do it's trying to lead you away from god so you have to always sort of be in the moment and say wait a minute wait a minute okay no no that doesn't really line up so so how i got into all of this was i kind of walked backwards into it is the best way kind of back my way into it and it wasn't something i thought i would end up doing so i was raised uh uh In a Baptist church, I was baptized in a a church in Canada. I'm from Canada. It was called the United Church, but we intended the the Baptist church. But I, like most people, I shouldn't say like most people, like a lot of people, once you get into your teenage years and the peer pressure and the brainwashing really starts to kick in with the education, I uh, sort of accepted that and left uh, following Jesus and following God. And I did that for a number of years and still when I was quite young in my, uh, you know, say 20 or 21 latest, um, make it 20. Um, I was at a, uh, at my house and I had my brother over and one of his friends and we were doing a typical 20 year old Friday night, drinking a lot of beer and late into the evening, they said, uh, Both of them, I think they almost had it sort of planned for whatever reasons, but the conversation came up, said, how much courage do you have? And I'm going, I'm 20 years old. Nothing can stop me. And and, uh, I said, I have a lot of courage. They said, well, do you have a courage to read a book that we would like to recommend to you? And I said, sure. And uh, I had no idea what book they were going to. I had a lot of things going through my mind, but I had no idea what book they were going to recommend. And this was in 1980. uh, So a long time ago for all the young people out there. Uh, So, and the book was called The Late Great Planet Earth by a prophecy writer um, named Hal Lindsay, who was one of the cutting edge. And as it turns out, more accurate than most by a stretch long stretch in terms of what he was working with cutting edge as how it prophecy as to how it was shaping up from a geopolitical uh, scenario at that time. And that book literally scared the socks off of me. And so I thought, okay, he did a good job of scaring me. Could this be true? I was aware of some of the things he was talking about but not a lot because most churches don't teach prehistory and prophecy and they don't show any sort of connection not that uh, Hal was teaching about prehistory but particularly the prophecy that he was that he was looking at and so I thought the only way I can verify whether or not he's manipulating scripture or not is you know do what I do I'm a contrarian so I checked out all of the verses And then I thought, well, is he showing me all of the verses? Well, of course, you can't with all of the prophecy that's in the book. It's like a third of the book is prophecy. So I thought, well, the only way I can really do a good job of trying to figure out whether or not this is a wake-up call of my life or not is is I'm going to have to read the Bible and I'm going to have to log all the prophecy. And so I started off doing that and uh, i got into genesis 6 very early on and i came across this thing about giants and nephilim uh, because i i tend to use more than one english translation um i like reading modern english but i like with research to do and uh when i do it uh, is to use the king james Version bible and i go a lot deeper than that but and so i thought well that's too crazy i'm on that's not the path I'm on here. That's not what I was intending on. Doing. I'm just going to ignore it. But you get through uh, after the flood and you see these giants show up, but they seem to be a little bit different. And you get all of these different tribes that show up and they're not in the table of nations. And, I'm going, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And I still ignore it. And then I get, you know, probably halfway through. And then I just stop logging it because I need to sort of reset. It was just too much. I wasn't prepared for how much it was coming at me. And then I thought, well, if I start over, I'm going to log everything in different files because now I know how many files I need. and i'll just make it so that i can do branches off of those files if i have to and i'm going to log the uh the giants and the angels and all the stuff that sort of goes along with that so i went through the whole book and i put all of that into separate files um but i still i would missed some stuff but you learn that over time because you don't see all of the connections and you start sort of adding back to that and then i had that all together and i thought there's a lot of really good information here. And at this point in time, I'm just, you know, I'm absolutely obsessed with prophecy. And so I want to put it all together. So I actually create binders of stuff and all of the, the verses that I've got, I put together and put it in groupings and different subject areas. And it's not a book, but it sort of lays kind of things out. And I, I spent between like 1980 and about 1997, Ah, uh, just sort of doing that, and then I decided that, you know, what I have a lot of information here. I don't see a lot that's out there. I mean, Hal Lindsey did a great job. There's a lot of people that work on a prophecy, but I'm not sure they're. I'm not sure that they're they're telling the whole story. And so then I thought, well, what would I do? And I said, well, maybe I should start with something short, because as I'd learned with all of the research, there seemed to be this inexplicable, unexplainable connection between the giants, the fallen angels, and prophecy, And that the angels keep coming up and and the giants are very prominent along with the evil spirits. And you get these evil spirits and demons in the New Testament, again, with the fallen angels and all of these mighty men that it's talking about in the book of Revelation and stuff. And so I thought, I don't know whether or not I can write a book. So I'm going to try and write a book and I'm going to try and write a short book because
0: (laughs) that went well.
1: (laughs) Yeah, just to see whether I can do it. And I want to see whether I can get published. And then I want to see whether or not anybody buys the book and actually likes it. And do I want to do more? Because I literally I could do 13 to 15 prophecy books just on different narratives. And it's there's just so much information there. And so that's what I decided to do. And I wrote the first 10 chapters pretty darn quick. Um, But when I was young, I was very much a history buff. And very much a mythology buff. So I was understanding sort of intuitively that the different religions around the world and the different mythologies and the different cultures and the different histories were talking about the same type of events In prehistory, they were using a different vernacular lens. They were using a polytheist lens versus a monotheist lens, but they're talking about the same events, the same kinds of civilizations, the same kinds of people, the same types of religions that's talked about in the Bible, but just telling it from a polytheist lens. So I thought it might be interesting because a lot of Christians aren't, you know, led to read in... Learn about that stuff, even though they're being brainwashed with it every day in the media and in the entertainment. They just don't realize it. So I thought, OK, I'll I'll, I'll put that in. So I started putting all of that in. then I realized the context to their history and their mythology was the religion. So then I had to learn all about the religion. So I had to read the Vedas and I had to read... um uh, the Quran, and I had to read all of the Gnostic Gospels. And I, so I, all the major religions, including the Kishamaya, because I wanted something that was um, from Central and North America. There's very little written records. If there was a book I could have read on religion that sort of, represented the African tribes and nations, I would have read that. But again, there wasn't really that that was coming down through history, so I read the Popol Vuh as well. And then as I read all of this, I understood by learning about the religions that there's this sort of strange commonality amongst the polytheist religions that are mystical religions, mysticism. They have what they called mystery schools. And they have different names in different cultures, but they're there to develop the knowledge of mysticism, the knowledge of the world. And this was the start of the time of the secret societies, because they come out of the the mystery schools. And so then I had to learn all about the mi- secret societies, and I didn't know anything about it. Have I heard of Freemasons, sure. Have I heard of Knights Templar, sure. Uh, I mean, I would have heard some of them, but I didn't know anything about them. And going down that rabbit hole was, a, a, you know, another eight or nine years. And so I wasn't ready to publish my book until 2013, 2014. And then I had to get published, which is, you know, if you think writing the book is, is a big project, that is a big project. But it's nothing like trying to get your first book published. Let me tell you, it is uh, because i didn't want to do a self-publish i wanted the distribution muscle um and so trying to get into a publisher is almost impossible so you're trying and they don't even accept manuscripts um although i sent them manuscripts anyways big binder i had to learn how to do a proposal i had to actually take courses on how to do the proposal. Then I had to do learn one how to do an online proposal at that time, all stuff that I had never sort of been involved with. And then um, I learned that while they're seeing what they call agents, and so I tried to get agents, but you can't get agents because they're just overwhelmed as well. Like there's something like, you know, 30,000 books coming out being published every three months. So you can just imagine and there's shrinking amount of publishers all of the time. So trying to get published was a lot more difficult. And so you, you cannot, you cannot uh, get dejected like J.K. Rollins, for example, I think 100 publishers turned her down. Can you believe that? And the publisher that published her, I remember listening to him in an interview, and he was saying, you know, I went down and I sat down with her and I said, you know what? You can't make money on children's books, but we're going to publish you and we're going to lose our shirt on it. (laughs) But the writing is just so darn good, is what he told her, that uh, we're going to publish you. And then, I mean, it just became a juggernaut. So. What you learn from that is the publishers have no idea what's going to sell.
0: Yeah. So that's part I'm of sure, the problem, right? I'm yeah. Sure, a book like yours isn't something that comes across a publisher's desk very often. It's a very, uh, you know, rare topic that people are actually investing in and talking about too.
1: Yeah, yeah, not a, not a what they would call a mass market. And you combine that with, uh, it's a large book, so it's high cost, you combine that with, I had no platform, um, I, I, I'm not a minister, I'm a researcher, I did this while I worked in, in my working career, and so I had no platform. And so trying to get a publisher was really, really difficult, And uh, but I, I, I did get one, then they went bankrupt about 30 days before publication. So I was able to get the work that was done at that publisher. And then one of the people that was working at the the publisher um, went over to a company called Deep River Publishing in Oregon and recommended to the new publisher that he was working at that, hey, we're working on a project that we thought was really interesting. And so that publisher got a hold of me (laughs) because I was just devastated. I didn't know where to turn. I thought, well, I just have to go through this whole process again and keep, knocking on doors and so that's how i got published and so then i had to learn i learned the hard way very quickly um that even though they're gonna they talk about all the marketing and stuff that you're going to do they don't do much on marketing so i had to figure out i wasn't on social media um and so i had to figure out how to work social media how to get some attention on that and how to you know get people you know to communicate with me and then finally it wasn't that long it was two or three months because i say some very interesting things um somebody had called me to uh to uh do an do an interview and uh so after that it was just then an, and i did three, three after the one show uh with 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 the host um he said, let's do a couple more because there's just fascinating with what what you're talking about. And then after that, then there was another one and then it just started to sort of snowball. And and now it's, I try and manage how many I do every week. So.
0: Oh my gosh. I know it's brilliant, you know, for, I think that that was a really good strategy for you because it mitigates the time you have to spend editing content and creating it. And instead you're you're offering your time to somebody who can do that and share it to all these unique platforms. And so many people have heard of you and you've touched so many lives, you know, and, but you're not, you know, you're on social media, but it's not like your main focus, which I think is amazing.
1: Yeah. I mean, and I need to do more social media, but I've been hunkered down with the, with the sequel, a book that I said I would never write, (laughs) but this one, but what happened over the process, because I have another book I'm 300 pages into that, uh, I've set aside just to do the sequel because the communication from people who contact me through social media or my email, off of my website, um, they they're just absolutely starving for more information. And I didn't, didn't want to do, I didn't want to do a, a sequel because I thought I don't want to be redundant, and I thought it would be just more of the same, right? And so this book is targeted, the second book, the Genesis 6 Conspiracy, and it's going to be something like prehistory and prophecy because I want to make connections back and forth all the way through and walk through some chronology of the end time as well with it. Um, It is specifically targeted at Christians. The first book has a Christian biases, no doubt, but I'm using the NIV Bible, for example, and the reason why I use that is because... People who aren't in in Christianity uh, tend to like an easier read, uh, as I do, Um, because I use six or seven different Bibles, but when I'm just reading for for pleasure, I like it in the English language, and that I'm trying to encourage non-Christians to give the Bible another look. So I'm trying to invite them in with the knowledge, and I'm hitting on things that um, they may know of or be aware of from their own religion and their own family history. So, um, and so I do a lot of shows that are non-Christian because I can talk their lingo. And I learned that that was really, really important. And I didn't realize it at the time. I know I'm down a rabbit trail here, but you know, Moses is, is the, uh, is the role model for that for me, because he was raised and and adopted into the royal family, educated in Heliopolis, taught all the mysteries, and then, you know, he's being prepared to do what he what he's you know been born to do, uh, but then he makes his conversion back, which isn't an, an easy conversion back to his uh, ethnic roots and leader of uh, of Israel at that time. But when he comes back, he can talk to the priests both with taciturn communication and verbal communication and things that he's going to do in a way that they perfectly understand, right? Um, And so he is going to uh, be able to be very, very convincing and he's going to just keep striking at the heart, which scares the heck out of them because he understands intimately exactly what they're going to say, what they're going to do and i think that's a significant advantage so to know your enemy but also if you're wanting to communicate with them is you, you can put on their shoes a little bit and sort of give that provide that information in a way that hopefully they might receive it
0: and that's one of my favorite things about you because the way you do talk about this can be received by such a wide audience you know i know different people learn in different ways but when it comes to these topics that are you know, mainstream likes to label as conspiracy. It's one of those things that it has to be delivered right to break that to break that yes. barrier between somebody's perception of thinking it's this outlandish, untrue thing and getting them to buy into critically thinking and at least just asking questions. you know, And I think you do just such a phenomenal job with that. And for me, how I stumbled on you, um kind of interesting, when I was in first grade, I wanted to be a clown whenever I grew up. So I became I there was a clown college that my mom took me to, and I became a clown. I became a, an actual registered clown in first grade. And it was just always this short period of my life, but it was this really unique thing that I did. And now growing up, I as I started asking questions. I've had questions about clowns. I've looked at pictures and I'm like, who picked that idea for a clown? Like, why do clowns look like that? You know, and what's the, what's the origins of clowns, you know, and what intrigued me about it? And so I started researching clowns, not realizing it would lead me to the Nephilim, you know, so I'd love to hear from you. I know that that's a a topic that you've dove so deep into. What about, maybe explain what Nephilim is and for you, like what really attracted you to that topic in particular?
1: Well, what what attracted me to the topic was how it seemed the Nephilim story was so intertwined with the post diluvian history as well as the anti-deluvian history. So both before and after the flood, and it was absolutely intertwined through not only the time of Noah forward, but into Abraham, who moves in to live amongst the giants, um, away from giants to live. In, Actually, amongst more giants, and then he's going to be the progenitor of the nation of Hope, who is raised in Egypt, one of the beast kingdoms, and are going to go back into the land of the covenant that's absolutely dominated by giants. And and and, and again, for people who aren't familiar with uh, my work or this isn't taught in uh, in most churches um you're when it's not taught people are missing so much of the context to what is going on with the conquest of the of of the covenant land and so that just riveted me that there was such a connection between the giants and our history right and so that's kind of how i i i i Decided I needed to learn so much more about what was going on with these people, and you know, there's a interesting sort of uh, passage in the Book of Psalms that I, when I first, you know, read it, I again just yeah, and but when you start to know the context of the of the history. Then things start to make some sense, and so there's an interesting psalm, and I recommend it's read in the King James version than more of the modern versions because the language here is, um, I think, better suited. It's not trying trying to wash it down here, and that's Psalms twenty-one nine uh, through eleven. And um, what it talks about in Psalms twenty-nine through eleven is is that there's a time of anger, the time of wrath in the end time. Uh where um God is going to make the many of the people of the earth, you know, um dist- He's gonna destroy them by fire and he's gonna make it like a fiery oven. And it says that he's gonna swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire is going to devour them, and that their fruit. Um God is going to destroy from the earth. And Okay, that makes sense right up to there. You're thinking, okay, I I know about Armageddon, I know what's going. But then what happens? It says, and their seed, from among the children of men, and you just kind of go, well, what the heck is that talking about? There's going to destroy a certain people, and of course, people can say, well, it's allegorical for a spiritual thing, right? Um, you're spiritually a follower of Cain, and and I get that. And and it says in twenty one eleven that they intended evil against. Um, and they imagined a mysterious device or they pl- plotted against God and, and his people, which they weren't able to perform. But it's that seed aspect of it. it. That's not allegorical. I mean, it is an allegory as you take that back, as you understand the fruit, that this is a bloodline. This is a race of people and it's going to be um, dealt with in the end times. So As I started to put the pieces together, I understood that the creation of the Adamites is the resolution to the angelic rebellion, and that the fallen angels are the ones who create these giants in Genesis 6, the sons of God, and we know I have a great document on the sons of God if people want to get a hold of me for it. Two documents I do that on, on how we know the sons of God are angels. And how we know they're not Sethites, or it's not a reference to like to the sons of God in in the New Covenant and in the, in the New Testament, which is a promise of the resurrection in the future time when we're going to be raised up to be like angels. So, yes, there's the sons of God there, but it's not these ones that are talking about. And in you know uh, Job uh, two one and one eight or one six, I'm sorry, you get the sons of God that are presenting themselves in heaven. And it's the same words that are used in Genesis six. And then we know for sure then that these sons of God are angels in 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 Job 38, 4 through 7, because the angels that Psalms 104 talks about um, are created before creation. And Psalms 104 is a great uh passage to set alongside Genesis 1 in terms of the creation account. It gives support to the details and adds information, which typically the Bible does as it unfolds and in job um, 38 it talks about the sons of god singing with the morning stars at the time of creation because that's telling us that both those passages one psalm 104 and Job 38 that the angels are created before creation So we know the sons of God are angels. And what I'll do in the document in terms of the sons of God document is I'll connect that back to the host of heaven, which is the Saba. I'll connect that back to the stars as as the allegory and the angels. And they're used together in pairs many times throughout the Old Testament so that you have scripture to say that each of those are talking about the same people. And, And then the other document will also deal with why they're not, you know, they're not humans of any form, whether or not they're not the children of Israel, all of that aspect. So, uh, those are great, detailed, all scriptural documents if people want them. So, you have the sons of God that are being created as one of Satan's revenge to ensure humankind isn't going to be the resolution to the angelic rebellion, isn't going to reach their destiny to be raised up like angels, isn't going to reach that de- destiny to. To judge angels for their crimes against humanity and against creation, but that they're going to try and destroy humankind. and creating these giants are designed to lead them away from God, to over uh, oversee them, to rule over top of them because of their extraordinary power and size, and that they're there to make sure that. Nobody follows God. That's really what they're what they're trying to do, and they looked at humans as mundane, as virtually cattle, which is one thing to keep in mind as we we move into the end time, if indeed we're in the fig tree generation. So that's what I kind of looked at and said, "Wow, I gotta I gotta connect some of those dots." <laughs>
0: That's so fascinating. I think that's a topic that, like you said, a lot of people who read the Bible, maybe kind of skip over, or it's something that at the time intrigues them, but it's not so prevalent that people get reminded of it and sucked in. You know, yeah. really fascinating that you really dove into that and look at everything you've created now as a result.
1: Well and what's interesting is if if you're reading just the King James version bible you're not going to see that word nephilim that we've been talking about you're going to see the word giant and that these were described as mighty ones which uh, mighty ones goes back to the hebrew word gibor and the male plural is the im suffix which is uh, you know a a tyrant a uh, a mighty warrior and it's used most often of the 158 times it's used in the Old Testament um, in Hebrew to describe giants. But it can also mean strength. And it can also be used to describe the strength of God, for example. Or uh, one word is Excel in the book of Psalms that it goes back to that's describing the angels. So you have to make sure as you're taking the meanings out of Hebrew that it fits the sentence, fits the paragraph, fits the narrative, fits the passage, and isn't in conflict anywhere else in the Bible uh, when you're doing that translation. Just the same way you would want to match up doctrine and prophecy, there can't be any contradictions, otherwise you need to go back and have another look. And the word giant goes back to the Hebrew word nephil, which is uh, the singular form, and I am is the male plural, just like seraphim or seraphim in Isaiah 6. Seraph is the singular, and I am is the male plural, and so it can mean sort of as a plural and as in ones. So that's where you get mighty ones from. And so these are nephil, which are giants, as they're defined in Hebrew and by the Strong's Concordance. Um, and these are the giant ones. It's a tribe of giants, but it only shows up three times in the in the Bible as nephilim. And twice in Numbers thirteen thirty three with the report of the scouts, which is the embellished part of the report. And it's saying that the Anak, are the children of giants, which is the Hebrew word Nephilim, and it says that twice. Trouble is there is, is, is the Anakim, as I like to call them, the Anakites, as it's listed in the Bible, they're not Nephilim. They're Rephaim. And how do we know that? Deuteronomy 2 tells us that when it's talking about the Anakites, were giants, and the word giant, Goes back to the Hebrew word Rapha, the singular, and Raphaim is, is the male plural. And Raphaim is used 25 times in the Old Testament, um, and referring to giants all of the time. And it is the post-diluvian giants that it's referring to. So the Nephilim tend to be the anti-Diluvian giants for the most part, and the Raphaim are the Uh, I mean, the Nephilim are the antediluvian, Rephaim are the post-diluvian, unless somehow Nephilim survived the flood, which is um, another interesting question, but not what we're talking about right now. So when we look at the Nephilim and the Rephaim, the Rephaim actually shows up as a tribe twice as it's translated accurately out of Hebrew. So that's in Genesis 14 in the King James Version Bible, where it's got the tribe of the Rephaim in the war of giants. All of these people that they're talking about are giants or hybrid human giants in the in the war in Genesis 14 in the time of Abraham. And then in Genesis 15, when Abraham is promised the land from the Nile to the Euphrates, the Rephaim are listed again accurately. All the other times where it's going to be uh, Raphaim as the as the root word is going to be translated as giant. So when it says the valley of the giants, that's the valley of the Raphaim.
0: That's so fascinating. I think for me, I hadn't paid attention to. I had heard that word, you know, Nephilim here and there. I had heard people talking about it, but I also didn't realize how how much that past history that you've uncovered and decoded applies to a lot of what we see today happening in the world. And I'd love for you, if you could talk about maybe tying in how that history, why why is it important that people educate themselves on this? How does that apply to the world that we're in today mm-hmm. and where we're at in potentially being the end times?
1: Well, the first thing is, is that to properly understand the, the larger context of prophecy, end time prophecy in particular, and the history in the Bible and our histories, you have to understand prehistory because everything flows out of that. So, for example, all of the beast kings, beast kingdoms, and there's you know, there's um not all of them are listed, but we're told there's seven in the uh, in Revelation 17. The two that aren't listed are Egypt and Assyria. So the ones that are listed are Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and the end-time empire. And then Antichrist at the midpoint of the last seven years will be the eighth empire. But there are seven, as Revelation 17 talks about. And what's interesting about the beast empires, these are the descendants of the royal bloodlines that the Nephilim work. They set up the royal houses, the House of Dragon that is so popular on Netflix today. They were literally the House of Dragon because the Seraphim were serpent-faced angels, and they were able to take a physical body, um, and when they did that... They were passing on those genes and the kings would look just like them. So when the angels took a physical body, they looked like serpents and dragons and a lot of the kings, well, a lot of the Nephilim would have looked just like them if they were procreated by that specific type of angel. And that. Connects why you have all of these dragon and serpent gods that dominate prehistory and why the kings are described just like them, because they were their spurious offspring. And so it's important to sort of understand that context that both before and after the flood, they usurp the kingships, and then they start to populate and dominate the four class system that they introduced that we would understand as the feudal system, one that they're trying to bring back by destroying the middle class right now because that's the old system. That's what they would like to bring back. And so they dominated the priesthood, the religions, the education and the larger economic society, just as the oligarchs are doing today. And so you would have a small entrepreneurial class, And you would have the slave class that would be what they wanted for the humans because they were there to control them destroy them do what they wanted with them but make sure that they're not going to follow god and have their names erased from the book of life and demonstrate along the way the legitimacy of the angelic rebellion, whom they were loyal to because they were the spurious offspring. And so they developed into larger and larger nations and more and more powerful and created these bloodline dynasties that produced the beast kings. And so the beast kings are completely intimate with Israel and Judah, the Southern kingdom, because they're all playing an active role in the fulfillment of prophecy. So Egypt raises Israel. Assyria punishes the northern tribes, the northern Israel, as they're called, versus the southern nations of Judah, the tribes with Judah. Israel takes northern Israel into exile and disperses them into history. Babylon takes uh, the southern kingdom in 589 BC, off the Babylon and destroys the first temple. The Persian Empire permits them to go back. The Greek Empire absolutely dominates them and actually sets up an archetypical sort of understanding of the abomination. And the Roman Empire comes out of the Greek Empire, and then they're the ones that are going to not only crucify Jesus uh, with the help of the Pharisees or or support the Pharisees in crucifying Jesus is more accurate. But they're also going to destroy the nation of Judah, destroy Jerusalem, and disperse them around the world. So the end-time beast empire is going to be completely intimate with Israel and Judah as well. And by extension, it's going to be playing a large role with those grafted into the Old Covenant, which are Christians as part of the new covenant. So it's important to understand that. And it's important to understand how we got to where we are today so that we can understand what they're doing today to bring about the end time, which they want. They just want to do it before the ordained time. And they're getting very frustrated because they're being not able to do it as fast as they want to do. And they want to have a rendezvous with destiny and a showdown with God so that they can, um, be in complete rebellion earn through the rebellion a place to be separate from god and in a realm all their own which is exactly what satan was trying to do as he's, it's described in isaiah 14 that he wanted to raise his throne to be be in heaven to be like mm-hmm. god and to uh to have his own realm or region or planet Where he would be able to rule like God and out of the reach of God and out of the oversight of God. And archetypical Antichrist figures, both before and after the flood, have been trying to do that since. And so you have, uh, for example, Nimrod after the flood. He's an archetypical Antichrist figure with a universal religion, and he's trying to build a uh, tower that's going to go into heaven. Um, And he's trying to storm heaven just like Satan did in the original Angelic Rebellion, and will do again in the end time in Revelation 12 at the midpoint of the last seven years, along with Antichrist. And Antichrist actually succeeds in storming heaven in Daniel 8, uh, verses 8 through 10, and will actually bring down some of the starry hosts. So it's important to understand that what is going on in the world today is an agenda to get us into the end time and to uh, try and destroy as much of humanity as possible.
0: 100%. And I think everything that you're teaching, you know, I don't know if you realized at the time whenever you were creating all of this, how important it would be in your lifetime for people to know this. But it is interesting that, you know, so much of what we do read biblically and all across the world like you said a lot of these uh ideas and concepts and beliefs they cross over you know there may be differences in religions and books and literature but overall there are overarching themes that seem to be concurring worldwide within these even if there are differences and i think it's fascinating that you've kind of laid the groundwork for going into this maybe without even knowing that, you know, this would happen in your lifetime.
1: Well, yeah, I wasn't sure whether, and I, and I start off in my uh, preface that, you know, if you learned about sort of all of this, what would you do with that information and what would happen if you started to talk to people about it? Would they completely reject you? Would, I mean, what would happen? And uh, that was a real issue I was having to deal with. And, um, but I was felt compelled to continue in the research to do it. And every time I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I've, I'm losing it, right? This, this is crazy stuff. Information would come my way inexplicably, and it would just sort of lure me back in. it was, and I could, it was, and it would also be like, I would it's almost like hearing a voice that is out there, but you can't really hit it. But it's just sort of like a whisper almost. Um, not like a demonic whisper, but just it's trying to encourage you to 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 go on and have faith. And so, and I'm not saying I'm a prophet because I'm not, I'm a researcher, and I'm not saying I talk to God in a way that A lot of people say that they talk to God. All I'm saying is, is it felt like a lot of times there was things that were going on that were was encouraging me and helping me back to recommit to what I had started to do.
0: How do you feel about uh, or I guess I should say, how would you explain when you say the Nephilim, they need almost a human host or they need a way to uh, be here physically? Where are they right now, and in what, how, and in what ways do yeah. they make their presence here in the world?
1: So, the Nephilim were the giants, so they were physical beings. And in Genesis six three, unlike with the standard dogma where it says God is limiting life and His spirit isn't going to dwell with humankind for more than one hundred and twenty years, people say, "Well, that's the commission of Noah." Except the math doesn't add up because if you go from um, the end of uh, chapter five in Genesis, uh, then you go into the first four, first four verses of the Nephilim in chapter six, which is the preamble to the flood story. Then you get the commission of Noah. Noah, when his sons are born, is 500, and he enters the ark when he's 600. So the math doesn't work. And uh, those passages bookend the Nephilim story. And so his. The Nephilim are the cause of the flood, which is one of the things that um, isn't taught. And so um, people sort of need to take a step back. That it's not just the violence, but who was causing the violence and what else was going on that God would want to start all over. And that that's the creation uh, of of the Nephilim. So the Nephilim were actual physical beings, but God steps in. Within that creation narrative, Genesis 6 3 of Genesis 1 through 4, 6 1 through 4, is going to limit life to 120 years. I have a document on that for people if they want. I'll walk them through all of the words and and the logistics of that. That's because there was an angelic spirit that was put into the spurious offspring. And that this was an immortal spirit. It's a violation against the laws of creation that um, they were creating gods in the physical world uh, they're called demigods in in polytheism after um, you know when they were created and even afterwards and they tried to keep that mantra and demigod as it's understood in the ancient definition is the offspring of a god and a human female so when poseidon and Clyto, a human female get together, they're going to create Atlas and his 11 brothers to you know for the, Atlant, uh, the Atlantis civilization, which is, again, a Genesis 6 story, just seen through a polytheist lens. So, when their bodies died, because even though they still had an immortal spirit, God wasn't going to permit that body to live forever in the physical world. And so he limited, and their bodies died, or they were slain, um, and they were not able to repair their bodies. So, that Counterfeit spirit that doesn't come directly from the Holy Spirit from God, it comes from the fallen angels. Is what they call an evil spirit or a counterfeit spirit, as I like to call it, and or a demon spirit. And uh, so, the evil spirits that Jesus is talking about in the New Testament, they're called evil spirits. They're also called devils, and devils in that application goes back in Greek to daemon, which is. You know the Greek version of demon as we transliterate it. It's not Diablos that's used for devil for when it's talking about Satan, like in Revelation 12 as the devil. Um, He's also a serpent and a dragon as well. So he's got some connections to the seraphim angels as well as the cherubim as Ezekiel 28 talks about and many other titles and features. Um, That's how powerful he was. Don't want to digress on that. So Jesus is dealing with these bodiless uh nephilim the demon spirits and what happens is they're not permitted to go to sleep like humans do their bodies uh die and their spirits are either going to go in a couple of different directions they're not allowed in heaven um they could go into the underworld or into hades or into sheol Uh, Or they could be sent directly to the abyss if they're one of the terrible ones. And they would be locked in the sides of the abyss, as Ezekiel 32 talks about. And so, and the terrible ones are also talked about in several different chapters of of the old, and that's, and goes back to the Hebrew word erit, which means basically mighty and strong, and, and, but. It's trans and terrible, and it's translated as as the terrible ones. These these are the ones that do the horrible things of the Nephilim. So that's what we see after their bodies die: is the ones that you know aren't in the abyss and the ones that aren't in the Hades that can come through, apparently in the cult on certain days of the year. These are the ones that wander, and they need a place of rest. And if they want to interact in the physical world, they need to possess a body or an animal just as with legion they went from the individual and into the pigs on the cliff right so they need that place to rest or to interact physically because they're just spirit form now these uh nephilim need and raphaim they need what they call a habitation or an oiketarian. So that word comes from Jude 1.6, when the angels left their habitation. That's the Greek word oiketarian. The other time it's used in the New Testament is 2 Corinthians five two for house in heaven. It means oiketarian. Oiketarian is understood as a dwelling place for the spirit. Is the definition. So they left their dwelling place, the angels did, uh, for their spirit in heaven to take on a new body and create a new dwelling place of the spirit. So the body, the physical body is made up of three parts as we understand it coming into the Bible. You have the body and the soul, that's the and the spirit from heaven. So that's what is required for them to interact. That's what was required for the angels to interact. And now the bodiless spirits of the giants, because they need an oikitarian. So roll that forward to Jesus as one more example, is, is you have, the word was made flesh within Mary by the help of the Holy Spirit so the word is is the word of god who created all things when god speaks that's the word and that's what's made flesh the word some distinction in there between the father and the word the Mm -hmm. distinction between the father and the holy spirit and so you have uh, the word made flesh and he needs a oiketarian to interact in the world in a way that is going to be able to atone for the sins now god could just have made a body Appeared instantly, but he wanted to be part human with the manifestation of the Word in the body that he could atone for the sins of the world and overcome the sins of the world. And so that that's the oikitarian that the Holy Spirit created within Mary for the Word to become flesh. Um, so everything starts to connect as you understand so many things that are coming out of prehistory. so that's why they possess that doesn't mean that the host still isn't in there. you just have two spirits in there now, and they're in absolute war because the host is trying to fight back from the invading spirit
0: so can that show up as say a demonic possession, or how would that manifest
1: uh, yes, three different ways as i've come to learn i used to think two, but there's three different ways one is complete war as you see in demonic possession right it does all sorts of horrible things and is puts the human through all sorts of distress and uh the 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 second thing is something that is done in the occult and they and generally done through the adepts who have been taught how to do this and it's not clear to me how that all works out within the body but they would invite a demon spirit in to gain more wisdom so the shamans do that the clowns do it or part of that trickster spirit was part of that history that goes back to the demons it's a trickster spirit of the nephilim as opposed to a trickster spirit of the angelic realm And so there is that, that goes on, and those are also done with the Magi, they're also done uh, with any of the priests or the warlocks, they like to be able to do that. And so it's more of a symbiotic relationship. I'm not convinced of that, but I think there might still be a struggle going on there because the demonic spirit wants to control the whole thing, right? So I can't see how it's as symbiotic as what they they would indicate. But there's another one that is brainwashing people with today. That's called the Avatar-Avatara effect, and that's out of the Hindu religion with uh, gods like uh, Vishnu and Shiva who would incarnate and beware of that word incarnate. Cause that's, that's the occult version of it is, is that uh, a angelic spirit will enter into the body of a human generally at a child level in the uh, Eastern religions and produce wisdom and power. So Buddha would be an incarnation of Vishnu. Right. and, Shiva incarnated also, you know, 12 times, Shiva, I think 16 times throughout our history. And one of the times that Shiva, which is the destroyer god, incarnates into a demigod called Narasimha, who's described as a lion, that um, Aslan in the uh, Narnia tales is depicted as a lion and is an incarn- incarnation of Jesus would be on another planet. Be careful with that because that's not what happened to the word of God right there's a special body that was created there's no sharing of one oiketarian it's a different concept so don't fall into the occultism that, that people brainwash you into so this is, this is uh, the third concept and so the avatar is the angelic being and the avatara is the receiving human body and we need to be aware of that with the end time with Antichrist. He's going to call himself the new Buddha. He's going to call himself Lord Maitreya. He's going to receive his power from the dragon, whether it's Azazel or Satan or both. So there's probably going to be that incarnation that's going to be the counterfeit messiah that's going to allow him to do miracles and signs and things like that. We ought to be uh, you know, well aware of that. And Biblically, we know this is possible, which usually people haven't, they've read it, but they haven't made the connection. So when Judas was trying, was going to betray Jesus, he starts to get weak need, and then Satan enters into him the avatar, and the avatar to carry it out, and then Satan leaves him after he's done it, and he ends up hanging himself because he's so guilt-ridden with what he did, and he doesn't have the power of Satan within him anymore to continue.
0: That's fascinating. How do you feel, too, about, I have heard from different uh, just uh sources when I've been on my quest for studying the Nephilim and even clowns, just going down those rabbit holes. I've heard some people say that that bloodline still exists, and there's ways that you could potentially identify it. Not to say it's synonymous with every single person that has these characteristics, but do you believe that people that have, you know, red hair, those blue eyes, some of those maybe really tall features, um, in mm-hmm. heights? Do you think that there's any merit to that being true as a way that that could be manifested, even if it's genetically and not something that, you know, came into the person's body later in life?
1: Yeah, so the Royals believe that, and whether or not it's 100% true or not, uh, although we get that crazy passage out of Psalms 21 and uh, also a matching one in Daniel 2, 42, where you have the descendants of the beast kingdoms, and in Daniel 2, it's the metallic kingdoms that they're talking about, just a different allegory for the same thing, and that they are going to mix their seed with the seed of humans in the end time again. So there's two different races. There are things that are going on there that is indicating, again, uh, bloodlines will be uh, around in the end time so the royals and all that word royal is roy as in king as it goes back to old french and latin and al uh, al is a transliteration of el as in baal and el is the hebrew word for an angel or a god, or it can also mean mighty, and so these are the kings of God and specific gods of the of the pantheon uh, of the Balim after the flood after you know who who were the reigning gods after the flood versus the parent gods who reigned before the flood, and so they keep their genealogies. And they keep their genealogies that go back in history. And you have uh people like Prince Charles the Third, uh, who is now King Charles the Third, uh who is or Prince Charles who has become King Charles the Third. Um, he takes his genealogies not, not only back through the Hanovers and he's got scion bloodlines in from the uh the Stuart dynasty and other ones but specifically he likes to brag about and he's on record saying it two or three times is that he takes his genealogy back to vlad the impaler which is the character that was uh dracula was modeled on a vampire who drinks blood to have immortal life uh, and dracula means son of a dragon and just as a serpent and a dragon are the same thing in antediluvian times. And as we talked about, uh, dragons being seraphim angels or serpent angels. So there's, he's, you know, the name says son of a dragon, and the kings look just like them in, their, in the in the post-diluvian period for the first few hundred years and then, uh, in, before the flood. Um, with the Nephilim, and so he takes his bloodlines back to the Indo Aryans, and there's four groups of Indo Aryans. But he is this typical, classic, red haired, hazel eyed, pale skin bloodline royal that goes back to the Raphaim after the flood, because the Scythians, one part of the, the the wing of the four different kinds, are the Tuatha De and they are typically red haired. Hazel eyed, pale-skinned giants, and or blonde hair, blue-eyed, and pale skin. Now there's a third one that I'll talk about in the book with the dark in the new book with the dark-skinned ones, but those are the most common ones. And he and through that bloodline, it goes back through Hercules, demigod, spurious offspring of Zeus and a human female, and then back eventually to an angel in their genealogies that they keep, which is Tamiel, which is uh, another name for a Quesidea, one of the seven major angels in the book of Enoch that were part of the watchers that rebelled. Uh, They keep these genealogies and the purity of that bloodline is where they fit in that Royal cult culture. And so it's important for them to track that. And, it's important as well to, to, to understand that these royales um, call themselves also rex deus, the kings of God as well is another title, or the black nobility, which they're also known of. And there's many of these royal bloodlines, and they all are kind of rivals to be the end-time Antichrist, uh, but they do work, you know, sort of directionally uh, for, for for the same goals. Now, they believe they have something called the gene of Isis. And you notice that word genealogy, and and gens is an LB gens. One is one of those bloodlines, LB being white or pale white, and gens being a patriarch, a specific patriarch of an angel or a uh, Rephaim or a Nephilim. And they have their genealogies that go back into prehistory on this. And that uh, the gene of Isis comes from the mother goddess and that's what they say is that specific gene that they have or that's the fairy gene or the elven gene and they like to call it the elven bloodline uh which is the same sort of Elvi or Elbi or lb, LB Gensian as the Gnostic uh, sister religion of Catharism in the time of, of the uh, Templars, uh, was very, very popular, of course. And at the depth level, the Templars worshipped as Gnostics, as Cathars, as lb gensians And that, that's the elven bloodline of the Tuatha de Danann. And that's the bloodline of the elven kings that they take out of part and part, a part of the scioning or the grafting into the bloodlines of the dukes of Edom, which are, we take that word back as uh, duke, it goes back to Hebrew, Aleph, and then they extend that into elf and into elven as in plural. And so they look at those... Uh, bloodlines in the chiefs of Edom before Edom was there, or the Edomites moved in there with Eliphaz uh, and Esau, Uh, those were the Horites or the Horim. They're part of the Raphaim tribes, and then that's part of the hybrid peoples that are going to be created with the Amalekites through Eliphaz son of Esau and Himna, daughter of Seir, who's a Horim, and Seir goes back to the Hebrew word Satir or Sair for Sat uh for satir. And uh, sair means hairy watcher. <laughs> and watcher shows up four times in the book of Daniel. So Sa and ayir, ayir is Watcher, which means they're all awake, and it's the four groups of angels that are around the throne. Obviously, some of them um Rebelled, And that's where you get the shaggy, hairy ones or the goat gods because they've been degraded from their uh, previous status, just as Satan was degraded to Satan's status from his uh, before status. And so this, this genealogy is very, very important with that gene of Isis that they like to track. And it's that gene of Isis that they say produces the Rh negative bloodline that was added to humankind. And people say, well, you can't add something that wasn't there because it means it's, you know, RH negative, it's missing the D antigen. It's, It's the gene that produces the bloodline that is missing the D antigen. And they have those traits that you're talking about. And studies show, and I have a document on RH negative and it shows the traits, but yes, they have red hair, hazel eyes, most common, blonde hair, blue eyes, pale skin, Uh, they're supposed to be highly intelligent, they have more psycho-telepathic encounters, capabilities, um, a whole bunch of different things. So what happens with the uh, bloodlines is that, and I talk about this extensively in in, in the new book, is that the Rephaim, which are the post-Diluvian giants, they're not as fertile as the Nephilim, which populate incredibly and so the raphaim just as in their um Ugaritic texts are wanting the balim to come back baal and ashtaroth to create more raphaim because they're having problems reproducing and these are the terrible ones that are being talked about. And one of the meanings that's attached on to the terrible ones, the Eretz, the Ereim, as I like to call them, is that they, are, it means childless or infertility, which is a reflection in the name of the terrible ones, of the post-Diluvian Raphaim, that they had um, an inability to to produced and the numbers they need to needed to do to sustain them. So they had to intermarry with humans, just as Eliphaz intermarries with Timna. But this also goes to answering and I cover this in absolute a lot of detail in, in the new book is as you have nine patriarchless nations in the table of nations in Genesis 10 in First Chronicles 1. And nine of them are part of 12 of the Canaanites. So you have three that are listed you have Canaan, you have Seth, not Seth, you have Sidon, and you have Heth. And Sidonites, Hittites, Canaanites, three of the 12. We get that. But then you have like the Amorites, and then you have like the Hivites, and you have the Jebusites, and all the nine. There's not a patriarch there. They're called families of Canaan. And the general interpretation of that is that they're just offshoots of the three right um but that's not that's not what the bible says it doesn't say anything so they're the only ones in the table of nations without patriarchs that's because the raphaim needed to reproduce and so those nations uh, were named after a raphaim and I'll provide a lot of those names in the in, in the new book in terms of and taking it back both patrally, uh eponymously, and patriarchal uh patronymically s- through history so that you can see how that connects back to a specific individual. And so um, uh, you know, like the Amorites would have been named after a uh, name very similar to the Amorite or to the Babylonian god uh of Amar or Amur. And he had offspring with a name very, very similar to that, that the Amorites would take that name from, just as sort of one sort of example. And so it starts to answer why there there are not patriarchs there, because they had Rephaim. And so we have other nations that are listed in the Bible after the flood who aren't in the Table of Nations. These are Rephaim nations. It doesn't matter whether you're talking the Emim or the Avim, or the Horim or the Hivim, or other ones like the Kadmonim and and the Rephaim, they do not have any patriarchs, because no Rephaim patriarch is part of the table of nations that comes from the descendants of Noah, because there's that inserting of that bloodline into the humans. So a lot of the humans will, in other parts around the world, will also intermarry with them as well, like Japhethites up in Scythia and places like that. So what's important about that is that we do get Arba as a name that is explicitly said to be the patriarch of the Anakites or the Anakim which were one of the variations or the tribes of the Raphaim as they're defined in Deuteronomy 2 and by the name giant Rafa Raphaim. And so he's the patriarch and he's the greatest of the patriarchs and so his name isn't listed in there so there'll be other tribes like the makatites and i won't go into all of them um a lot of some of those ones i'll cover in the first book but i'll cover them all in detail in in the second book so they're going to intermarry with humans as they intermarry with humans they are going to start to lose some of those features they're going to try and keep those bloodlines as pure as possible but they're going to start to lose some of their features the size over time, even though that will still continue to pop up through those zines, those genes, they're going to lose that serpentine look. And if people say, are you sure they look like, like serpents? I would encourage people to, as an example, to Google Akhenaten. Uh, or go see a, t- a King Tut uh, museum that tours around the cities. If you look at that Akhenaten picture, this is over a thousand years after the flood. And there's been some intermarriage, but he still has this elongated skull, this serpentine elongated skull. He has these large wraparound eyes, and it's thought that those eyes would make the room light up. They are called the shining ones um and he had these high cheekbones this long protruding chin these thin lips and he looked like a serpent <laughs> he looks like a snake when you look at it once you start to make that connection and then that's a thousand years after he you can see what's happening over time is they're starting to lose some of those features and so by the time you roll that forward to the last thousand years all they have is their genealogies they're keeping their bloodlines as pure as they possibly can but they have to continue to intermarry and that weakens them but within the within the uh polytheist cult of of the royals they look at tracking their genes their genealogies it's the the gene of isis they also call it the fairy gene because fairy is the matriarchal allegory for the matriarchal bloodlines of the bloodlines Uh, also an owl is and you might equate that with uh, lilith and that's mixed in there as part of that allegory Uh, fairy queens fairy godmothers that's all about the you know taking their matriarchy bloodlines back to the duality of the mother goddess and then for the male god the allegory is a serpent or a dragon because they're kind of the same just as dracula as we talked about son of a dragon and also a raven you might see raven as an allegory that's used in 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 their in their bloodlines and so um for them they're going to have these bloodlines that they're tracking and they're going to have the gene of ISIS and it's going to produce the RH negative bloodline, their belief. Um, uh, And I would like to sort of insert at this point in time, it's again, we have to be very much aware. It's what they believe and then what they're doing with that belief. Not necessarily do we have to buy it all, but we need to understand what, what they're doing with that belief system and that they're always trying to create the new man, as was talked about in Nazism, which is very much an archetypical or yeah an archetypical scenario for what the end time might look at, look like and and in terms of trying to bring back the new man, which is the new Nephilim, they're trying to always create that new that that era where they were demigods and they want to be like gods in the physical universe again, so that is is what we have to be aware of. And that, that sort of explains, if I if I wasn't too lengthy in the explanation, um, why they track it and why they don't look like they did in the past. Not because they didn't want to. And if you look at that word, and it comes up in the King James Version quite often, the word fair, as in beautiful. Right. That's reflecting the royal bloodlines and the fair skin, just as the Tuatha Dudan were the fairy folk and the fair folk. And these were giants that were part of the, the Raphaim tribes, uh, the Datanu, as they're talked about in the Eucharitic text, um, or the tribe of Anu, Tuatha Danu. There's several different names for, for them that come throughout history, and they are all blonde-haired, blue-eyed as they most of most of those ones marched up the Danube River and into Russia and into Sweden. And the red hair, hazel-eyed ones, a lot of them migrated to Ireland and Scotland and to England. And uh, they are part of that fairy gene, that elven bloodline.
0: I think it's fascinating, not just all the history, but how much work you've done breaking down these words. Even when I've heard you say elven, it made me think of elf, you know, and it just... There's so many different ways that, you know, historically and biblically we see words or we are introduced to stories or names of people or names of beings, even. And then seeing how that word has manifested throughout time yeah. to mean so many different things that we see today. But don't know the etymology of it of how it's related to something in the past. I think that's really fascinating.
1: Yeah. And I'd like
0: to ask you, what is the what have you found as far as Nephilim's influence or um I guess how it ties into secret societies? Have you found relationships between the Nephilim and then how uh secret societies function or if there's relationships between that?
1: There's uh direct relationships. And uh, again, uh, if you take, you know, most people are familiar with Freemasonry. Uh, they are not the top level of the secret societies. They are the lowest level at the, produced the first adept level. at either the third degree or the 30, uh, third degree York, right? 33rd degree Scottish, right? And you have to be invited to join them because they're looking for those bloodlines. Right. Um, Or perhaps new money that they want to intermarry into uh, the bloodlines. And so if we look at Freemasonry history, they're related to an ancient organization called the Masons, the ancient Masons. And these are all royal bloodlines. And in their history, that comes out of the Polychronicon. Um, which is their oral tradition that they add on to books like to the King James Version Bible. Um, They keep their history in. And in their history, they take their history back to being created um, through the creation of mysticism. And mysticism is created by Enoch the evil, Enoch son of Cain versus Enoch son of Jared. There's two Enoch's. Um, and that he is going to take the knowledge from that he learns from his dad, Father Cain, who learned it from Adam in Masonic history, and split this knowledge into seven sacred sciences, which we know as the seven liberal arts today, taught in universities. And that they're going to develop that knowledge through the mystery schools, which is going to develop. The secret society. So they take their beginnings all the way back to Christian and Judaic prehistory with the splitting of the bloodlines. And um, in, in the first book, I cover this in detail as I go through the first sections of the book. And so they are part of that connection in with the Cain line that is going to produce the daughters to intermarry with the sons of God the angels, the watchers, to produce the Nephilim. And the Nephilim are going to inherit these uh, the religion and the knowledge, the schools, the complete upper end of the society, and they're going to pose their will and lead the antediluvian epoch into the first apocalypse of water. And then they're going to take over again within 100 years after the flood and do the same thing again. And Nimrod, even though he's the son of Cush, he's going to become like a gibbering, like a mighty one, but he's still, he's still a human, right? He may change somehow with some of this knowledge. And he receives the antediluvian knowledge, which was significant. that We haven't talked about in great detail, but we're just catching up to that knowledge now. And that he writes the first constitution in Masonic history. And uses that knowledge to create Babel City, Babel Tower, and that tower will have with that knowledge somehow be able to reach into heaven. That's like uh, like a stargate somehow. So even though Babel means confusion of languages as it comes out of biblical history, As the accounts come out of polytheist history, particularly in uh, the Akkadians and the Sumerians, uh, Babel is called Babalu. I-L-U is a transliteration of E-L or A-L. It's just from the Sumerian language, so it means God or an angel. And Bab is a a gateway, Uh, so it's like a portal or a stargate to go into another dimension, which would be used to go into heaven would be the thought as you sort of extend that and speculate on that, if looking at it through a polytheist lens. And so you have these bloodlines that are controlling the ancient masonry and are the adepts, and that knowledge is kept only for the adepts, and they create the whole degree system of going up. And there's more degrees than three degrees, Right. So as you go up the tree, you understand that there are the next one up from the Freemasons is the Illuminati. And uh, somewhere between third degree and fifth degree using the old system is the Illuminati because they they sort of center at the center of Freemasonry with their own order. And it's called a Thelmic tree as they go up and a Thelmic tree in the occult has its roots that go into the underworld where they get their power from. And meets heaven. So it joins heaven and earth. It's the world tree is another allegory for it. Similar to what the allegory for pyramids would be in one of its its, its many meanings. And so that's the Illuminati. And they have a specific agenda. But understand Illuminati and Freemasonry are modern creations. Just as the Rosicrucians are. These are formed after the fall of the Knights Templar that are made up of royal bloodlines. Like the Anjou. And uh, the Anjou include uh, de Payan and Duboulian as as part of the founders of the Knights Templar, who take their bloodlines back to the, to the Merovingians through Dagobert, and then back into history to, to giants and all sorts of different sort of directions. And so when we look at uh, the modern groupings, we see those at the bottom end of the scale. So as they're recovering from the loss of the Templars to decentralize, they create a number of of organizations, some in the Thalmic tree, and then some that will branch into it. Now the Rosicrucians to make because talking about secret societies can be a whole show um, <laughs> and more. Um, the top half of the Rosicrucians are royal bloodlines. And so you have the less pure ones and the ones that are intermarrying that are permitted to become an adept and are working their way up to have their future offspring, future generations Play a larger role in, 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 in generations down the road through intermarrying. Above the uh, Rosicrucians is the Committee of Three Hundred. Committee of Three Hundred families that's populated by the Black Nobility, Rex Deus, the European families. Black nobility can also have a specific name for the Italian royal families that take their bloodlines back through Julius Caesar and Augustus and back to the uh, the gods of, of Rome as well. And so, you know, that were started with Romulus and Remus. So they keep those genealogies as well. And then you have above that the Council of 33 Families. And then you have the... Uh, 13 families of the west and understand there's bloodlines all around the world these are the western families and within that upper level they also have very secretive royal orders Uh, you know like the knights of the seraphim which is the royal bloodline order of of the swedish or the blonde-haired blue-eyed tuatha de Danan. um and i won't go through all of them but just to give you an idea that they populate the top half and they control everything that goes on. And so other organizations that are created might be like um, the uh, Bilderbergers, for example, and that's going to be populated with at the top with bloodlines and it's going to have new money coming in from people like Bill Gates and stuff like that. They're going to be getting their marching orders and that's going to branch into the committee of 300. So you would have um all sorts of these societies branching out from these trunk societies that they dominate from the trunk within the agenda and the, uh, the hierarchy that they're located at. But understand that at the top, it's all run by the royals.
0: That's so fascinating. I love how you just tied all that in. One of the things for me that I was, you know, diving down these rabbit holes and whenever I was looking up clowns and I was researching the organization that I was registered from, which is called the Jolly Jesters whenever I was in first grade. And I was looking up in the country where they work and realized that the Jolly Jesters work very closely with the Shriners. Yes. And a lot of times hand in hand with the hospitals, the, the children's hospitals with the Shriners, they'll send clowns in. And I remember doing that as a child, visiting sick kids and remembering that there were grown men you know, alone in these hospital rooms with these children. And of course I'm little, that's, I'm not thinking about what could be going on. Right. But I was shocked, you know, now that I know, I don't, I'm not an expert on secret societies by any means, but knowing what I know about the Shriners, you know, I was very concerned about their relationship with clowns, you know, and realizing how these different, uh, biblical, um, concepts and things that date back so far today intermingle in different physical forms, you know, that are so foreign. That no, most people would never connect dots and think, Oh, why, why is that working with, with that? And you know, why just asking questions about it, you know? And so for me now, I'm like, geez, this is a crazy rabbit hole to go down.
1: Well, yeah. And, uh, you know, those clowns, they have that pale white face like the shamans do right and we talked about this trickster spirit It's a it's it, it's like they're taking in that demonic spirit and that um that may not be one but one who would would be look would would, would turn sort of pale just as you see that sort of depiction in the exorcist right yeah and, yeah so jesters also had these pale white faces and they were tended to be you know the jokers of the royal court and it's they were they were dressed that way to not sort of overtly show who they were and they were there to make the king laugh right and they were known as they were the polytheist priests that would counsel the royals uh, in private and so the superficial story is is that if they didn't make the the king laugh and do everything right they would Split their mouths open like that. So when you see the Joker in the uh, Batman movie, he's got that pale face like a clown, but he's got that slit on. And so you also have that look with the, in the Day of the Dead ceremonies, right at Halloween. And you also have that look with the uh, look with the theater masks, which are usually pale, and particularly descriptive in the chinese theater masks where they have all of these strange looking things that are going on this is all a reflection of that inner being remember they had pale skin and that's what they're trying to project on the body and and attack the body physically as they take it over
0: absolutely and like you were saying you know a lot of maybe not everybody in these groups i don't believe that I think a lot of them are led astray at that bottom level of Freemasonry. I don't believe everybody in it is, is evil by any means, but I, I obviously know that it's, you know, if, if people don't leave, you know, that road doesn't lead anywhere good as you keep climbing, you know, yeah. but, yeah, you but you the, the people are like, the, how unless it is.
1: Yeah. Unless they're in a depth, they don't know the true secrets.
0: Um, right. Exactly. They're
1: considered mundane as well.
0: Yeah. It's almost like, you know, and It's one of those things that once you learn about it, people automatically assume, well, if you're a Freemason, you have to be evil. And I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not saying that every Freemason is inadvertently evil. I'm just saying, you know, as you climb those ladders, they don't lead anywhere good. You know, we know those roads all lead to Lucifer. But it's very interesting how... how how much they know and conceal about this history and tie it into what they do and how oblivious everybody on the outside looking in you know we call these secret societies yet you know i have a lodge two blocks from my house you know it's not secret by any means it's just people don't understand the history as you teach it and being able to connect those dots of, of what what's actually going on here
1: Well, exactly. And then the other thing that people don't understand as we look at secret societies and why it's not so obvious who is running it at the top is that you don't have Royals going through Freemasonry up through Illuminati. They are initiated from childhood within the family and everybody has their own roles. And so they're an adept before they're an adult. And they're not allowed to take an adept title, but they're between 25 and 30 years old so you might hear the term a 32nd degree adept in the west or a second degree adept um elsewhere Um, that's because they're not allowed to take that adept title until they're a certain age because they're purebloods and so they're higher by the time they become an adult than anybody below rosicrucian's and so it starts to answer some questions so when you have occult writers who claim to be christians um, but their fruit would suggest otherwise um, let's say like uh, lewis and tolkien for example um, they joined the inkling society at oxford college which was a writing society designed to develop their craft the writing craft but they already had the knowledge because they were initiated from childhood, so people say, well, they couldn't have been part of a secret society because, you know, they weren't part of Freemasonry. Well, it's because they were higher than that, but they were part of a society that was sponsored by the Rosicrucian Golden Dawn Society. So a very high level or mid level organization of uh, that's populated at the top by purebloods, who are providing the writing craft and additional knowledge. And they allow these two supposedly non-members of secret societies in there. That's because they were Royal bloodlines and people accept the superficial story of their bloodlines. Again, I have a six part document series on Tolkien and Lewis, and then one document each within that on their bloodlines as they take them back to Royal families. So Understand they were initiated from childhood. And that's why they talk about so many different things that are polytheist history. Now, this is an M.O. that is used throughout history. So Francis Bacon, which is a Rosicrucian, um, who was, you know, second most powerful individual at the end of the Elizabethan era, first Elizabeth, Elizabethan era, and then with King James Stuart, um, and who wrote the 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 you know a lot of alchemical books, but one in particular, the New Atlantis, which is the role model for the end time, based on Atlantis and the ten kings of the Nephilim kings, worshipping a poly, polytheist gods who are trying to dominate the world with a world government. And he is the inspirational founder of the Royal Society, and his picture hangs in the entrance there today. And the Royal Society was created in 1662 by King Charles II um, and gave them a charter, which started modern science, as we know today, and the, the use of the seven liberal sciences and liberal arts, which are the same as the seven sacred scientists in the past, all with the agenda to lead people away from God, to not give God credit for anything, to slander and degrade God, and to honor their pantheon of gods. And you can see that in everything that they do. And they call themselves the last of the sorcerers and the first of the scientists. Uh, Very interesting term, because sorcerer is that magi, priestess, jester, joker, clown, shaman, ideology that that runs runs through through polytheism. And so when we look at the uh that the uh the development of the sciences today and the development of the organizations today it's populated and dominated by these individuals that are part of these secret societies, part of the royal bloodlines, part of an agenda and Francis Bacon was one of was the guy who literally pioneered modern English that was used in the King James Bible, and he did so through creating two literary societies that were going to uh, develop that language, and it was their job just to get it out there in in literature and stuff like that. And he, those two societies, the first one was the Knights of the Helmet. And the next one was the which which uh, will ring familiar. Um, it was the uh, the <clears throat> the Spearshaker Society. And what's interesting about that? William Shakespeare was part of that society. Who a lot of people think uh, Bacon was the actual writer that Shakespeare took the credit for because that was set up that way. So it wouldn't hurt his position in, in the Royal court with uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth and then uh, King James after that. And so you have this long history of writing these things, like all of the tales of Shakespeare is Nephilim and Rephaim history and polytheist gods. And you even got fairies in there, like in Midsummer's night dream. And you have, you know, a Titania, which is a female Nephilim from the Greek um, history and mythology, married to the king of the fairies, Oberon. So we have a Nephilim and a fairy thing. And Oberon comes from Scythian, Ubar, and Old Irish and Gaelic as in Oberon an overlord of the Tuatha De Dan. So he's he's encapsulating all that. And you got all these other kinds of little people in there, but all of the kings and all of the history is re is sort of encapsulating the history of bloodlines and the history of the Rephaim and the Nephilim. And that goes right back into the classics that were written in Greek history. It goes back to like the Roman histories with authors like Ovidies, um, with Metamorphos and other uh, other books like that. They keep their history alive and prominent because they control the education. They control the religions. Just as the Black nobility inserted their control over a lot of the priesthood within the Catholic Church and produced through the Black nobility many, many popes.
0: That's the part I think that's most hard for people to awaken to is just how deceived we've been our whole life. You know, that... And then something for me, especially, I look back on everything I learned in school and I question all of it, you know, and it's like, gosh, they really did infiltrate every part of society to basically, I always think of that movie, The Truman Show, you know, carefully curate <laughs> yeah. our lives so we're compatible with being deceived of what the truth is, you know, history, science. All of it leads us away from God and into this, you know, society that functions in a way that, you know, just even how you said in church, you know, we're not educated, period, on this. You really have to go out of your way to understand any of this.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I'm not saying that these aren't great writers or there's not great entertainment. I mean, the entertainment value is just terrific in what they put in there, but... I would encourage people to learn the languages that they're talking in so that you understand. I mean, allegories, metaphors, uh, symbolism, characters, beings are all part of their taciturn language that they have encoded. And the reason why they like the arts so much, whether it's a painting or whether it's a play and why they like to talk about it so much is because there is embedded in all of that meanings that the average person has no idea that's there, but the adepts do and they're watching it and they're going, aha, that, aha, that, and they're getting it. So it's in their language, a fairy tale is a superficial story that the true meaning is embedded below the superficial story through the allegories and the symbolism that um, reflects it. And, polytheists believe that the Bible is a fairy tale and that um, you have to be an adept to understand the allegories underneath and, and interpret it in the interpretive way as what polytheism is to get the full meaning of the Bible. And that's not what the Bible is all about. It's there to meant to read. If you want to learn more about the Hebrew words and get a larger context, you're free to do that. But, um, you don't need these secretly de- decoded allegories and meanings that, that they have. That's part of the degrees of, of, of mysticism. And that it's interesting between Tolkien and Lewis is, is they looked at this concept of the fairy tale with a what they called, that they applied to the hero as a eucatastrophe, which means the hero never received the true end. But you would rewrite that story, the happily ever after Part of the story so that the hero wouldn't have to meet that end. And so they look at Jesus as not being crucified to death, that he was the hero of the fairy tale superficial narrative, did not die on the cross, was a prophet and a mortal prophet, and recognize him as that, but not as the word of God and not as deity status. And so they they're teaching this in everything that they do. And people don't really realize that they're accepting these little wedges. And while well, the Bible isn't all that accurate. And, uh, you know, do you don't believe that Jonah actually swallowed, uh, was swallowed by a whale for three days and three nights. Do you? Well, he goes, no, that sounds kind of fantastic. Well, then the extension of that is, is that, well Jesus said for the evil generation that he appeared for that the sign he would give them would be the sign of Jonah just Jonah just as he was 3 days and 3 nights in the grave and the polytheists get people on this all the time and they'll bring out the end game with that and with other end games like that to say well if Jesus said the only sign was a fable then so was the crucifixion, and that's how they work with their rhetoric and their dialectics, um, in terms of uh, using sort of the serpent tongue, as, as as I like as I like to call it. It's uh, they're very skilled at what they do of seeding doubt, and Christians need to be aware of that. That's what they're trying to do all the way through and to try and get you to be more open to accepting the polytheist ideals so if you hear somebody talking about you have to understand the bible uh, metaphorically or allegorically that's probably a gnostic and i would suggest that and i know a lot of christians like to interpret it allegorically but i would like you to do interpret it the way jesus did and the way the disciples did
0: not to mention Satan is a legalist, right? So yes. they have to tell us what they're doing and we give them our permission by consuming what it is that they're giving us through entertainment and things like that. And they're smart. Yes. They label it as fiction. Yep. So then we watch it and say, Oh, that could never happen. It's not real. It's fiction, you know, yep. again, word play. Yep. Um, when in turn we're, we're feeding that energy to them and we're not, Saying no. So we're essentially agreeing to the truth that they're hiding in fiction. It's all really brilliant how they've done it. And nobody does a better job at decoding all of this than you, Gary. And I could talk to you for hours and hours. Um, I would love to have you back on probably a hundred more times because mm-hmm. there's so many different topics that I could pick your brain on. But where can people find your book and connect with you?
1: Yeah, the best way to get a hold of me is through my website. Uh, through the genesis6conspiracy.com, uh, www.genesis6conspiracy.com. And that's the number six. Uh, and on the website, there's an icon to contact the author. So if I've uh, talked about uh, some documents tonight, which I have, just name it in that subject area and you want it, I'll send it to you at no charge. Um, if you want to ask me a question, uh, feel free to do so. or um, And it may take me two or three weeks to get back to you because um, I have that much traffic coming in, but I will get back to you with it. And uh, also on the website, I have a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters. And so you get a good feel for the book if it's the right book for you or not. Um, And it only has a small fraction of the information, even though it's a large excerpt out of each chapter. Um, And the book will keep coming at you with the information all the way through it never lets up so you can't speed read it um, I, I kind of joke at times you might blow <laughs> some brain cells if you're trying to read it that fast so read it as fast as you can digest it uh, as I say 98 chapters short chapters four to six pages um, so that you can read a chapter a night or come back and find stuff because each chapter is a mini story as I wrote it that will keep coming up as the book unfolds and so you may want to go back and so i wrote it in that way it will be a little bit easier to read because it's so much information and, and and a large book and you if you wanted to buy the book you can get a signed copy off of me from the website uh, and I've got a page for the U.S. I have a page for Canada, and I have a page for overseas. Uh, if you wanted to link over to BarnesandNoble.com on the buy page, there's an icon there, or to Amazon.com or Amazon.ca, and over to the Kindle version. So lots of ways to get a hold of the book on on the website. That's the easiest way. It is available on um, on most online bookstores and in some stores, but for the most part, if you you know. You'll probably have to order it online. Amazon tends to control about half the market these days. But if you wanted to support your local bookstore, it's distributed through Bookmasters out of Pennsylvania. So they can order it. And if you wanted to support your local bookstore, and I support that. Uh, You can also get a hold of me on Facebook. Uh, I have a group um, that you can join or you can get a hold of me on my timeline or you can send me a note on Messenger. And that's just under Gary Wayne. Uh, The group, uh, if you wanted to join the group, is Gary Wayne and the Genesis Six Conspiracy.
0: That's awesome. And for people listening, I, I always say, please support the guests. We want them to continue doing what they're doing. And our financial support even just eyes on them. You know, people like Gary risk a lot talking about this. I'm sure he's not always met with people who are happy. He's (laughs) talking about all of these topics. I'm sure that could be a whole episode in itself talking about, you know, what you've, you know, risked coming out and talking about this all these years. But, you know, it's, we want them to continue doing what they're doing. Gary is very generous with his time. You know, like he said, he gets back to you when he can. And he did with me, been very, very responsive. And the least I think that we can do for guests like him who are so generous and who devote so much time doing things for free is to help support their businesses. And this book you are going to want to read. Uh, I'll link everything below that he mentioned. That way you guys can just go in the show notes and really easily click on his Facebook group, on his website, on his book link. I'll make that all very easy for you guys. Uh, Gary. I'm so honored to have you on. You've been—I'm still learning from you, and will continue to learn from you. But you've been such a great teacher for me, just in my short journey learning about all of this, you know. And I'm really excited to share this episode with everybody, and hopefully introduce a few new people to you. So I'm just really grateful that you came on today, and I want to thank you with all my heart.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me, and and, and hopefully uh, connected a few dots for people, and hopefully they will uh, look into things a little bit more. Uh, I would encourage people to do so uh, because you need to know why you believe what you believe, and it helps you from being deceived. And secondly, you know, as, if we are in the fig tree generation, and I think we might be, um, then you're going to have to make a decision, and no decision is still a decision. So we need to we need to know why we believe what we believe.
0: Absolutely, and Gary. You're awesome. I can't wait to have you back on again. For everybody listening, thank you guys so much for supporting the show. It means the world to me. It means so much that you guys care about these guests. And uh, I just ask that as payback, I do this for free also. Uh, If you guys could share this episode, it would mean the world to me. Share it with one friend, post it on social media doesn't have to be anything crazy, but please just support us too. It helps get the word out and it helps get more eyes on these really important stories and guests. So thank you guys so much for tuning in. Gary, thank you so much for being here. God bless you, everybody. And we will see you next week.